grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The text is the Gospel reading. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, the crucified but risen Jesus, there he goes again. He pops in. And this time, he appears to how many? Seven of his disciples. And where? It's interesting. At the very place where he originally called them to be his disciples and fishers of men on the shores of the Sea of Tiberias. Well, it looks like they've all gone back to the fishing business. Can you blame them? Now, the story has a familiar ring to it. They go out at night. They catch nothing. We've heard that before. And as they return, they see Jesus on the shore, and he barks out the orders. Throw out the nets on the right side of the boat. And behold, the catch is huge. They can hardly haul in the fish into the boat. John even gives the count. Do you remember? 153 fish. A number that means absolutely nothing except that it speaks to what? The hard data. The facts. The facts of the matter. Someone took the trouble to count the fish. Fishermen do that, you know. And John makes the effort to record it. Why? I'll tell you why. So that you would believe that what John was writing, right down to the very smallest, irrelevant detail, 153 fish, it's all true. But most importantly, what else is true? That Jesus truly is risen from the dead. That's how it is with eyewitness testimony. Witnesses tend to remember what? Strange, often unrelated details, like 153 fish. It's what you'd expect a fisherman to remember. Then it dawns upon John, it's the Lord. And Peter immediately jumps out of the boat and into the sea. He wasn't dressed to greet Jesus properly. Peter was unaware, he was aware, pardon me, of his unworthiness. He knew that he had betrayed Jesus at his trial. He denied even knowing Jesus, this bold disciple who was always so quick to speak. And now he's stripped down for work, and he wasn't expecting to be in church, so to speak. And so he dives into the water for cover, which, baptismally speaking, isn't a bad idea because our clothing before God is our, is our baptism in which we wear like a garment covering the shame of our nakedness. You recall the fall, don't you, in Genesis? How when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they became what? Self-aware and realized their own what? Their nakedness, and they tried to cover themselves with what? Fig leaves. But it was God who clothed them with animal skins, covered them with the death of another. And so we have this reflex as well. We don't want to be caught undressed. We feel vulnerable and exposed. I don't know about you, but some people have told me that they have recurring dreams of showing up at work, but they forgot to get dressed. Peter, the text says, dove into the water after throwing on his outer garment. Can't have, be having the Lord see him like that. And so when they go to shore, Jesus, interestingly, has breakfast waiting for them. And what's the, what's it consist of? Bread and fish. This reminds us of our Lord's feeding the multitudes with what? Bread and fish. Do you remember that? But this time he feeds how many? Seven. Bread and fish were likely symbolic of the Messianic age having come when the children of God 
would feed on the flesh of Leviathan, the sea monster, Antichrist. Read Psalm 74, you'll see that. And so the point, one of the points, is that in Jesus then, the messianic age of salvation has come. So it's no wonder then that he feeds his disciples. He's always feeding, isn't he? And they knew it was the Lord who was feeding them. He's the host and they're the invited guests. Now John purposely wants you to think of something else here. What do you think? The Lord's Supper. You are the invited guests. And Jesus takes our bread, our wine, what we bring to the table, and he uses it to give us even more, his own body and blood. He takes our gifts and he makes them into his gifts. And with his gifts come all that he died and rose to win for us. Not simply a quick breakfast, but a feast. Not simply bread and fish, but his body and his blood. Not simply nourishment for the body, but food for eternal life. And so here in John's Gospel, this is the third time they have seen the risen Jesus. Truly, bodily risen from the dead. This wasn't simply a one-time vision. They'd seen him twice, you remember, in a locked room in Jerusalem. And now they see him on the seashore and they eat breakfast with him. There's really only one explanation for it all. What is it? Huh? What's the answer? He's risen! He's risen indeed! Alleluia! So Jesus feeds. He forgives. He sends. Read the rest of the, of the chapter when he sends Peter. Forgives. Read it. <laughs> Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we, oh yes, we, we come to him broken, lost, confused, dead in our sin. Jesus, he's the one who gathers us. He's the one who calls us. He baptizes us. He gives us his spirit. He grants us faith to see him for who he is. And he feeds us today with the bread of his body. And he refreshes us with the wine of his blood. And he sends all of us into a broken and lost world. With what? with the good news of his victory on our lips. He is risen. What joy. Now, here's one more quick point that I want you to take home today. From the other two readings that we heard today, from Acts and from the book of Revelation, we observe that being a Christian provides you no exemption from what? From suffering. Saul would learn what it means to suffer for the name of Christ. For confessing Jesus, for worshiping Jesus only and not Caesar, John was arrested and experienced a prison exile on the island of Patmos. Peter, what happened to him? He was crucified upside down as he confessed the name of Jesus. The ancient Syrian Christian community of India traces their origin of their church to who? to the Apostle Thomas. So he, Thomas, who touched the wounded but risen side of Christ by means of a Roman soldier's spear, Thomas, was murdered by a spear, according to church tradition. And we too are going to learn to suffer for our Lord's name very soon in this country, because to confess Jesus as Lord, to worship him only, you are considered now to be an insurrectionist, a domestic terrorist, an enemy of the pretend, almighty, infallible, 
I said pretend divine state. When and how exactly this is going to happen is yet to be seen, but that's all in the Lord's nail-scarred hands. We do know this. No matter what happens, we belong to who? We belong to the Lord. He has baptized us into his death and life. We've died with him. We've been raised with him. We are glorified with him. He is with us, his gathered people, in a most profound way, feeding, sending, and forgiving. So we don't come to church to worship some dead and departed religious figure or some merely inspirational leader. We worship the crucified and risen one, the Lamb, who was, as the book of Revelation says, the Lamb who was slain, but who now lives never to die again. Yes, brothers and sisters, Jesus, he is the Lord of creation, whom even the wind and the waves and the, the fish obey. He is the one who is seen by Mary Magdalene, by the apostles, by Saul on the road to Damascus, by John on the island of Patmos. And he is the one we will see again on his day when he appears in glory. So, to him, namely Jesus, who sits on the throne, and he who is the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever in the name of Jesus.